hey, it's no driving gloves for you guys right now. And I would say if you're watching our Facebook, because uh, we keep sharing, or if you're a dedicated listener and you've actually uh, liked the National Corvette Museum, the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum, and Big Oak Garage's uh, Facebook pages, you should know that uh, our co-host Will is on his way to Good Guys in Des Moines tonight uh, while we're recording. So he's not going to be joining us, and he should be, um, I guess, maybe playing with a car out there. Um, Can't say for sure. I don't know if I'm supposed to say for sure. So we'll just go. I think he's going to be playing with a car out there. So it's just Derek and I tonight, and we're, I think, I'm not... I'm a little under the weather. I've got a cold, so excuse me if I accidentally hack or sniff or something. I'll try to edit all those out and make myself presentable this evening. I know my voice is a little bit off. And I think Derek's back from a week-long road trip where he, uh, I believe he did stop by and visit Will. Is that not right, Derek? That is right. And as you said, John, you know, if if our listeners have, um, you know, liked the Facebook page, liked uh, the National Corvette Museum, Big Oak Garage, places, you know, all of our respective pages for this uh, podcast and all the things we all do. Uh, They probably saw the episode of uh, National Corvette Museum episode of More Mondays last Monday. And well, I guess by the time this releases, my apologies, it would have been two Mondays ago. Um. I was down at Will's shop, uh, Big Oak Garage, and uh, Will was generous enough to kind of work with the National Corvette Museum on on giving us a really great deal on his old paint booth. Uh, He obviously, I think as he's mentioned on the show before, got a new paint booth and really needed the space the other one was taking up. So um, we at the National Corvette Museum needed one for our uh, kind of preservation and restoration work we do. So uh, it just worked out that uh, Will and I were able to get together and and make that happen. So we had a good trip down to Will's. And uh, as I say, we put it up on more Mondays. So you can kind of watch that if you're really interested in seeing what exactly, uh, you know, it took to get that paint booth and uh, start tearing it apart. So uh, but we did have a good trip. Good time with Will. Um, as always, got a, a tour of the shop and all the cool projects he's working on including the one he is uh, taking to Des Moines to the good guys show and uh, doing some kind of pre-show off work uh, there before he heads off to the other big show, which forgive me, I can't remember where that one is. John, do you recall? I believe it's in Cleveland. Isn't it Cleveland? No, it's one of the sea towns in Ohio. It Columbus? It's the Columbus. That might, that might be it. I always get Columbus, Toledo, and uh, Cleveland confused. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, but good trip. And of course, um, back this week to record and see where we go with tonight's topic. Yeah. And if anybody's looking for that episode of more Mondays, we usually do a pretty good job of sharing more Mondays on the no driving gloves page too. Uh, I think it helps out both groups a little bit. So you can find that on our page or you can go to the national Corvette museums page and, uh, you know, look, two Mondays ago, which would be, what's here, 24, can't remember what the date that would be. I can't, can't do math tonight because of this cold, maybe around the 17th. Uh, was that the, the 18th, so I believe. Just scroll back and, 
And if you haven't watched an episode of More Mondays, Derek actually does a really nice, nice thing, and uh, I'll compliment him. It's you know shot real quick, and you know with a cell phone, but comes off really well, and he provides a great amount of information. And that episode of More Mondays where he's picking up the paint booth, you can at least see what him and uh, Will and his bushy beard look like. Our, our dashing good looks. Uh, yes, yeah, obviously they, they do prove they have the face for podcasting, and I, I really don't have the face for either. That's why I, I don't have many videos out there. But we'll jump into our show topic. Well, I guess that's kind of what Derek was doing. I've actually, I've actually been doing work at work for a change, and um, we've been adding to our collection, and uh, we've added... Uh, eight new cars in the last couple of weeks or they've arrived and amazingly i would say i've got to count here real quick in my head three four lotus three model t's and an ac asica and so i've spent the last couple of weeks getting the model t's because you buy them at auction and uh they always need a little bit of work and one model t was a driver and it real actually it really nice i'm kind of thinking maybe i'm going to use that at our vintage festival instead of a golf cart it's a little uh 23 roadster pickup and it's got a um is it a i, want, I keep forgetting i call it a fronty but it's a front front head you know derek um front 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 head um this thing's supposed to be capable of like 50 55 miles an hour and i'll say it's damn scary to drive <laughs> i mean it, it, it's it's faster than a model t should ever go but it's it's just it's been a fun project to just you know not a lot of work to do just a little bit of tuning and fine tuning and getting it ready for the boss he wants he wants to give it a try and try to learn to drive a model t and me and the transport driver a uh, a little tidbit of of funny information there at least i i always find it funny is that uh hopefully our our listeners you know some of them may know and others may be shocked to find out but the Frontenac head, of course, was developed by none other than Louis Chevrolet for Ford Model Ts. Uh, this was after his involvement with Buick and General Motors when he kind of, you know, allowed uh, Chevrolet, you know, that division to use his name. And he left the company and uh, went off to do his own thing, which was Frontenac. So... A little twist of of fate there, maybe that uh, Louis Chevrolet would develop a high performance head that would work on a Model T. Yeah, I kind of found it funny when I was reading that because he, you know, he built a s- small run of cars, um, like for Indianapolis racing and things like that, and then he went on to you know Model T tuner parts. You know, it's kind of I, I took a picture of it and I really wanted to. to uh, I did take a picture and put it on our Facebook page. But I really wanted to put a picture and say, hey, the original sport truck, because it, it really is. It's a little roadster pickup. It's a convertible pickup. It's not lowered, but it, it's got the high performance engine in it. And gr- granted, it might be high performance, what, 18 horsepower, 12 horsepower? I don't know. But it's oh, it's, it's just got more than that. It's just a it's just a fun. I say it's it's a fun, fun vehicle to drive. The other ro- the other cars are roadster and it's fresh out of the restoration shop and it needs a lot of fine tuning and adjustment. Just like, you know, just because it's freshly restored doesn't mean it's perfect. It needs that couple of weeks with a mechanic to get all the fine tuning and stuff done. But, uh, model T's right now are a really good deal. It seems. And, uh, 
while they might not be the most practical, that they do attract a lot of conversation in that. And if you didn't listen to last week's episode, we talked a little bit about Model Ts and why the Model T became came before the Model A. That's a conversation I can't tell you how many times I've had in the last two weeks. And ironically, the episode we released last week, uh, which was recorded a few weeks ago, uh, prior to us buying these cars, um, Derek and I ended up conversing a, a lot about why the T came before the A in this instance, tying a lot of things together there with that 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 little project. And over the next couple of days, I'll, that was pretty that was pretty smooth yeah. there, John. So we, uh, I said, over the next couple of days, and that I'll post some of the new new other new acquisitions we got. We got we got some pretty cool things in, and I have to. I have to be quiet. I have a rule. I don't discuss things in public or post to social media until I see somebody else post. So you guys will just have to want and learn or maybe swing by the museum and check it out. Most of them are actually on the floor on display, which leads us a little bit into uh, kind of a topic Derek and I talked about. And, you know, him and I are really big into restoration and why we both love love cars and obviously you know we both have a passion for different eras of automobiles and um you know we're both in a museum setting because that's where we want to be we love the history behind the car and the history behind the car a lot of times is more than the car uh it's it's the stories and what happened around the car and sometimes it can be very specific i mean a lot of us have um, cars that are part of the family. Uh, just this last week, my father sold his house and unfortunately that means his massive garage is going away. So some of the cars he has stored in there needed to find new homes. And my stepsister got married in 02 or 03, forgive me for not knowing, but heck, I'm lucky to remember my anniversaries. And she used one of his cars as her wedding car. It's a 74 Pontiac Catalina four-door. Uh, so it's not nothing spectacular in the collector car world, but it's a 7,400-mile car, and it means something to her. Uh, it was her wedding car. It's part of my, you know, she's my stepsister, but my dad is her dad. And it just it just fits and it means something to her. And so I posted pictures on my personal Facebook page of the car and somebody came back with a quote from a movie, which I didn't recognize. And I took it as an insult and I kind of came back a little snotty and said, Hey, this is not the way to encourage the young to get into cars. You know, I'm not going to say my stepsister's age, but she, she's a lot younger than me. And she, you know, it's a collector car and it gets her into the collector car world and she's going to be out there showing the car and taking it to cruise-ins and we've got to be supportive of that. And I don't care what you show up in, you know, if you show up in a four-door Citation or a Chevette, I don't care. As long as you're out there enjoying your car, I don't care what it is. And I think this was, you know, again, it's a story. That car means something to her. And Fortunately or unfortunately, Derek and I have all kinds of stories when it comes to our restorations. And I've been fortunate enough, you know, working with the world's largest, or we've been told, there's no official documentation, one of the world's largest Lotus collections. We have over 60 Lotus in our car collection, hidden behind 1,600 motorcycles. But if people forget we have this massive car collection, 
And it's afforded me the opportunity to meet a lot of Lotus people. And Derek, in his previous employment, um, got to handle one of probably the most significant Lotus cars in history. It's one we would kill to have at our museum, but um, obviously another museum has it. And uh, I'll let Derek go ahead and tell a little bit of the story and quit boring you with my voice. <laughs> and we'll go into it, and we'll we'll expand on that and uh, see where this road leads us. Yeah, so... You know, and it's actually part of, I guess, not only the story I'm going to tell, but it's it's actually part of a story of John and I becoming even closer friends in some ways. Uh, but of course, as mentioned on the show before, uh, back in my time at Henry Ford Museum, one of the, the big projects that I was working on near the end of my stint there was actually the 1965 uh, Lotus Type 38 that Jim Clark uh, drove to the victory at the 1965 Indianapolis 500. And of course, the project was to basically restore the car. There was there was a lot of preservation and conservation work that went into it as well, but uh, really restore it to its race-winning appearance and have it be operational again. Uh, it had not operated that anyone knew of since it shut off after crossing the finish line. And um, that was proved evident through the work we did in, in draining the oil and, and looking at the engine that it had not run probably since they shut it off in the winter circle. Um, but in, in doing a project like that and, and, you know, the research that it takes to make sure that car appears exactly as it did let's say during the race or the moment it crosses the finish line you know the thing john and i get to do is is talk to a lot of people uh, you know get their memories their and a lot of cases in you know in in the case of this car uh, photographs of the car from people that took pictures of it during the race or after the race or before the race and so you get to meet a lot of people and in in the case of a car like that you get to meet a lot of very well-known people <clears throat> in the racing world. And in this case, and, and one of the reasons I say that this is probably something that brought John and I even, even closer uh, together in the car world is that, of course, restoring the 1965 Lotus that, that won the Indy 500, uh, you know, I had to talk to Clive Chapman, who's the son of Colin Chapman, the founder of Lotus and of course, Clive now runs Classic Team Lotus and really takes care of all of the historic Lotus race cars um, pretty much that are still out there. I mean, he has a hand in, in most of those cars. There are some that obviously he doesn't, but you know, a lot of people that own them let Classic Team Lotus help take care of those. And along with that, uh, Bob Dance, um, one of the legendary Lotus you know, mechanics and, you know, uh, just race team guys. He was, he was there for um, probably most of the races Lotus ever raced in. And uh, he was of course at the Indy 565. Uh, you know, I got to meet those, those two gentlemen and really hear the stories, you know, Clive stories of his dad and, and the memories he has of his dad and, and what his dad was doing uh, with, Lotus, you know, automobiles and the Lotus race cars. And then to meet Bob Dance and 
hear the stories of, you know, working on the car, his stories of a lot of the race car drivers he knew, but in this case, his stories of Jim Clark. And I think the, one of the probably most moving stories that both Clive and Bob told was the fact that, and, and John can back me up on this because I know he, he knows a lot about Colin uh, Chapman, is that Colin Chapman was a high-paced individual. I mean, he never stopped. He would get up in the morning, work, 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 work until the evening, go to sleep, sleep a little bit, get up and do the same thing over. I mean, there were, you know, uh, jokingly, you know, I think Bob Dance told the story that, you know, Colin would land his airplane, get out of the hangar. The engines wouldn't be even be shut off and, and actually idled down by the time he was walking down the stairs, getting into his car and peeling out of the hangar to go do the next project. And so this was a man that you never saw take a break or uh, do anything like that. And in, in working on this project, the story that came out of both Bob and Clive was the one mutual memory they have is that when Colin landed in his plane and walked off the plane and at the bottom of the stairs was met by a Lotus employee who had to tell him that Jim Clark was killed um, in a race it was the only time that anyone saw Colin Chapman stop in his tracks and not know what to do because Jim Clark meant so much to him as a friend and as a race car driver. And, you know, I think that's what, you know, John and I really want to talk about tonight is it's great that we have the opportunity to restore or preserve a car and that car still exists but in doing that, and, and in the museum world that John and I work in, we're doing so much more work because we're pulling the stories out and we're, we're telling those stories that go so much deeper than just walking by a car and saying, oh, that's the 1965 Type 38 Lotus that Jim Clark drove to you know, victory in the Indy 500. There are a hundred other stories behind that car that come together to really explain what Lotus meant in the racing world, what Jim Clark meant in the racing world, and overall what that car meant um, in indie racing history and in racing history in general. Um, so that's, you know, it, it, that's what, uh, you know, I think, again, John and I both were, our passion lies in that. It doesn't just lie in the cars that we get to work on, but it lies in the stories of the people that were involved, um, you know, and, and with that car, you know, we got it operational again, took it to the Goodwood Festival of Speed, the hill climb at the Manor House. And, you know, I, I had the opportunity to meet, you know, Sir Jackie Stewart, one of the most legendary uh, drivers, uh, you know, aside from Jim Clark uh, out there. And uh, I mean, you can rattle off names, but, you know, Sir Jackie is, is one of the greats. And his stories of Jim Clark and, and, you know, who the man was, who Jim Clark was, his, you know, just pure gentleman qualities that Jim Clark embodied um, were very clearly 
told by Sir Jackie Stewart. And probably one of the most moving things I saw in working with, uh, with Sir Jackie was when he got into the car for the first time, he actually paused and held his hands over the steering wheel, but didn't touch it and had a, basically a, a, you know, reminiscing moment about one of his dearest friends, um, who lost his life way too early. And, um, of course, uh, Jim Clark was also killed. I believe it was about two weeks before, um, Sir Jackie's son was born and uh, Jim Clark was supposed to be his godfather. So, you know, there's also that emotional family connection and, and bond that those two guys had that leads that car again to a whole nother story and a whole nother meaning, um, to other people. And to me, that's really what it's all about. It's about, you know, these cars bringing all of these people together and all of these stories together to make it even more significant than just being the Indy 500 winner from 1965. So, yeah, that's kind of, I think, a a mutual place that we have um, between us, John, because, of course, you've had the opportunity to meet both Clive and Bob in your career as well, and I'll let you kind of talk about that. Yeah, I've had the great fortune of, and Clive is one of the quietest, most mild-mannered people, um, and us as Americans, you know, kind of worship him, I guess, and he, he has a tough time thinking of himself as a special historical figure, and that's one of the challenges you know, Derek's very much right. And I'll be honest, I like doing restoration. I like doing the research more. I like the stories. I like finding the stories and figuring out what's going on and what was there. And to be able to sit down with Clive and hear some of his stories and his discussion. Um, He recently came to the museum and spent two days with us um, out of his generosity. Um, just after Amelia Island, he was there with, ironically, uh, um, all of a sudden I'm drawing a blank. I want to say Jackie Stewart, but that wasn't it. Uh, he was down there with uh, oh, Emerson Fittipaldi's car and presenting it. But then he came to the museum and it was in, in this course he went through and he discussed a lot of his father's works and the cars that his father put together, many of them before Clive was ever born. And he would refer to notes and he'd confirm some things because he was so careful. He didn't want to misstate anything because he does understand what he says is becomes fact. No matter what he says, no matter how many of us tell him he's wrong, he said it. So it'd be fact. So he was very careful with that. But one of the most interesting things that happened that weekend is our museum owns the Lotus Mark IV, which is Lotus' first customer car. Somebody came to Lotus and told, said, Colin, will you build me a car? I'm going to pay you X number of dollars. And the Lotus Mark IV is that car. It's the only one in the world that exists, only one ever built. And by a miraculous just happenstance, we came to acquire the car a few years ago, just recently. And in those cars that I'm not supposed to talk about, we got the Mark III, 
which is the fourth car Lotus ever built and the first one they ever sold to a customer. But they sold it to a customer after they built the car and raced it. The Mark IV was specifically built for somebody. Uh, there are two Mark Threes and one Mark IV, so kind of confusing there. But where I'm going with the story is we kind of we allowed Clive to drive our Lotus 211 as he was leaving the museum and these little film clips he was doing. But for him to arrive in the museum, we put him in the Lotus Mark IV. We have a replica Mark II and we have a, a replica Mark I. There is no Mark I in the world and we just haven't had the fortune to acquire the Mark II. And obviously we didn't have the three at the time, so it was the oldest Lotus we had in the collection. And he was kind of taken aback, kind of, as Derek just explained with um, Sir Jackie in that, He'd never driven this car. He never operated it. But this was the beginning of basically life as Clive knew it. Because by the time he was born, Lotus was a Formula One race team. It was a major producer of exotic sports cars. It was wanted by people around the world. And this is the car that basically started it all. And he, he, he took a moment. And it's nice to be able to tell that story. And that's one reason I wanted to create this podcast is so that we can tell a few of these stories that do exist. And, you know, Derek alluded to Bob Dance and I don't, you know, D Derek was very quiet about D Bob Dance. Bob was Jimmy Clark's chief mechanic. Bob was heavily involved with Ayrton Senna. Bob was involved with, um, if you name it, Lotus driver, Bob worked with him. Bob also took a break from Lotus for a few years in the early 70s and worked for Bernie Ecclestone when Bernie had a Formula One team. And you'll never get Bob to tell stories <laughs> about Bernie, um, but Bob's a very quiet man. But I've also been told Bob is one, was one of the biggest troublemakers uh, <laughs> in the Formula One pits. He, he's a very... Very funny man, full of stories. Um, I've seen a lot of movies. I've spent a lot of time with him. You know, some background movies like up at Watkins Glen when they're hanging out at Seneca Lodge and things like that. And you know, Bob had his fair share of good times. Bob has been integral in some of our restorations. But one of my biggest memories of Bob, and no matter how much they say, you know, he had a good time, and no matter how quiet he is, we were prepping our Lotus 69 Formula 2 car just for parade laps. We're going to go do three laps on a track. Uh, my boss is going to drive the car. And, you know, we might do 60, 70 miles an hour. We're not going to do anything more than that. We prepped that car as we were getting it ready for a Formula 1 race. And this car had been restored by somebody else and never been prepped by Bob Dance. And he made me take every nylock nut off of the car and find brand new ones because you can't reuse them and turn them down on a lathe to make sure two threads on every bolt were exposed. The way the car was assembled, the nylocks came flush with the end of the bolts. That's not right. There needs to be two threads, not three threads, not one thread. Turn these down precisely so that when I tighten them on the car, two threads were exposed. And it drove me nuts. I stood there for four hours or five hours in an event at the, our, our lathe, turning down these nuts so they would fit the car to Bob's standards. 
But you know what? The conversations we had in those four and five hours while I was doing that and bringing him nuts and then going back with more nuts, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'd stand there and turn nuts all day long, all week long, just to hear some of the stuff to, to, to learn and to work with a legend like that. That's a little bit of personal bragging, but it's also a story of, you, you hear a lot about these guys, but it proves the difference between a regular mechanic and a Formula One mechanic, uh, just the level of detail. And, you know, I've talked to people and done concours judging and discussed the nylocks with people and say, you know, this is the way it really should be. And yeah, it looked like, you know, that that's not important, but some people take that to heart because of the person that taught it to me and their respect for him. So, you know, that's our Clive and Bob Dance story. So now we've wasted or discussed, I wouldn't say wasted, we've discussed them for half the show. And, uh, you know, we have the opportunity where I'm at and the museum had a very, very good friendship with um, the only man to ever win world championships on two and four wheels. Um, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> my, my cold there, uh, John Surtees. Now we have his championship, world championship Ferrari. We have his world championship MV Augusta motorcycles. And while I never took the trips to Goodwood, and I even I had to cancel going with our team this year to Goodwood, I never saw John at Goodwood. He attended every festival of speed. He was very active in the racing world. Um, he, you know, unfortunately lost his son to a racing accident. Uh, a few years back and you know john passed away year year and a half ago and we don't get to see him anymore and it, it was a blow to the museum on his passing it kind of it proved to me the little bit of the just to hear him again very humble when he'd get on a motorcycle even at 75 years old he would just put on his leathers and he would sit on the motorcycle and he would kind of disappear. He just became part of the machine and he knew what to do. And there, you know, there's no telling him anything different. He knew two things. He knew how to be cordial and how to go fast. We had a dinner with him and this is, you know, the, the memories and the stories. And Al, uh, I want to say Alan DeCatney was the host and they were doing a Q and a with him and he was answering some questions and one of the first questions, we snuck in this other guest, and it was Dan Gurney. And Dan Gurney stood up and asked John a question. And before you knew it, they're telling jokes, and they're sitting on stage together. And what was supposed to be a night to honor John was, we got to hear Dan Gurney and John tell stories and tell jokes. And, you know, it was kind of a, you know, you you can't pay to well, that night you could have paid us hundred bucks a ticket or a hundred bucks a plate, but but you didn't know it was going to happen. You couldn't pay to do that again, and it's just how things happen. And it's you know Derek and I and anybody else in the museum world's job to figure out these stories and share them with people and discuss what's going on there. I think the other thing to point out, and and, and you know, I think we're. Um touching on it, but we're not blatantly pointing it right out, is that no matter how big the name is, you know, the Chapman name for Lotus, you know, Bob Dance's name in, in F1, 
uh, you know, Sir Jackie's name in, in so many forms of racing uh, or, you know, Dan Gurney or John Surtees, whoever we're talking about. And we're, we're talking about very, very well-known people. But the thing you learn in, in having the opportunity to meet these people, as, as John has said, you know, so many of them, uh, everyone we've talked about was, was and is a very humble person. And when you meet that, they're, they're people. That's it. As John said about Clive, he doesn't understand why people look at him as someone that is so important. They're just people. They're just people that have a passion for what they do. Just like all of us in this, in this hobby, there are people that have a passion for working on cars, for being a precision mechanic, for being the best race car driver or motorcycle racer that they can be. And that's what they're passionate about. But outside of that, they're just another person. And they, many of them don't understand why people think they're, you know, famous. Most of them are just like, I'm just doing a job. And, you know, that's, that's one of the big things you, you really get to learn and, and get to see when you meet a lot of these, you know, folks is that, you know, these are just people that have had good fortune in their career and, you know, have become who they are and, you know, but they're just doing what they're very passionate about. Would you agree with that, John? I'm trying to think of a way of agreeing with it without, and I'm trying to keep this as a very nice episode. I kind of told you when we <laughs> brief briefed and talked it over, it's, it's easy to sit here and brag or whatever that we've done all of this, but it's, it means a lot. And I'm going to jump a little bit different and we'll go back to, I, I've got a story about Mario I might conclude with. And that's uh, more of a, probably a brag story, but, but, you know, a couple of years ago, actually I know pretty well because I'm doing a sister car to this right now. And I know I finished the restoration in 2012 was with a Lotus Mark 10. And I've discussed it a little bit on the podcast before it was a multi-year project, you know, um, had 1150 hours in the car when we were done with it. You know, it's not 16,000 like Will's shop does or anything, but 1150 hours in restoring this car and probably about the 700 hour mark. And I could probably look it up on the spreadsheet because I've been reviewing them lately. Um, I came across a number on a registry and the number was all, it looked like a phone number. So I tried it and didn't work. And, I played with a few other ideas and somehow I stalked down the second owner of the car. One of the numbers was a transposed on this and it actually was a phone number. And amazingly after 20 years or whatever, this guy still had his phone number and I called him and, you know, started talking to this gentleman in his late eighties who would own the car and race the car and amazingly new email and digital photography and the ability to scan things. And in one afternoon, I went from having a picture of this car in a trailer park in 1983 to having pictures of this car on the racetrack at the racetrack in 1959. And we instantly knew how this car needed to be restored. 
and the guy's name was Bob Calmer, and I believe Bob's still still around. I haven't talked to him in a couple of years. I probably should reach out to him. Here's this guy. You know, I always tell the story. I called, and this guy answers the phone, and here we are in the age of robocalls and everything. Not so bad in 2012, but still. And I go, hello, this is John Viviani from the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum, and I was calling. I was wondering if you happened to own a Lotus in the late 50s. And you've got to say it really fast so they don't hang up on you thinking you're soliciting. And he kind of, there was kind of a pause and he goes, pardon me? And then I could ask in a normal tone of voice, and you know, did you own a Lotus? And he goes, yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it right now on my wall. And instantly in one afternoon out of the blue, this guy's, you made this guy's day. And it made me feel great because what he did as a hobby that he didn't think anybody remembered, anybody cared, his kids really weren't into it. All of a sudden, this museum is calling you, and he knew, knew nothing about our museum, but still, anybody's happy to have something in a museum, is calling, asking about his day's racing. And we talked almost every week until the restoration was finished, and we felt obliged at the end. We flew him to Birmingham. Out, of, you know, He lives at... Uh, near Chesapeake, Virginia. We flew him down to the museum and we kind of had a celebration on a Saturday afternoon and let him see his car and sit in his car and shed a tear over, you know, this memory he had. And without him, we would have, the, the restoration would not have finished the way it did. But with his help, we've preserved history and in the process kind of justified this guy's, you know, teenage hobby um and i can't even can't even comprehend how he did this and he's the second lotus owner that i know that did this i mean in 1958 him as a 17 year old boy without internet with telegrams and such found a car for sale in england bought it arranged to import it had it shipped here and raced it and I have another friend in Indianapolis who did the same thing with a Lotus 11 in his collection. And he did that in the early 60s. He found it advertised in a magazine, um, you know, Autosport or whatever from Europe, bought the car, arranged import, and got it to Indianapolis. And it didn't actually turned out to be one of the Lotus Factory Le Mans, 11 Le Mans racers, if I remember correctly. And the guy's a big Porsche, Kena Porsche authority. But he had this 11 from the time he, you know, he was a teenager. I'll be honest, I have a tough time sitting down to figure out how just to, and I'll be honest, I did it two weeks ago. I couldn't even ship an air fit, fitting to England without UPS sending it back to me. You know, it's, how did these guys do cars pre-internet, pre-cell phones, pre-any of this stuff? And it's just, it really is nice to be able to tell the stories that these people did that and how they did that and be able to make them smile again. And, you know, I've done that a couple of times, Tom Robertson with the Lotus seven that I talked about a few weeks ago. And, you know, these aren't huge names. Tom's kind of famous in the SCCA circles and has been inducted to some hall of fames, but you know, Bob was just a amateur racer who did it for fun for a few years. And, you know, kind of hung it up when he started to have kids and, you know, a family. 
And I'll be honest, even my boss was the same way. Not my direct boss, but the guy that owns our museum. He was a very successful amateur racer and certain turns in his life caused him to have to give that up almost overnight and stop, stop racing. But he, you know, he's been able to go back and relive some of his memories because he has the means, but those are stories we'll tell in a few years. And, um, but I think, you know, John, you know, in, in what you've just talked about, you know, that's, that's kind of the theme of tonight, if you will, uh, you know, talking about these stories and in mentioning that, you know, in, in both of our first stories, we have that mutual connection to people like Bob Dance and, and Clive who are well known, but they're, they're just another person. They're, you know, when you really get to know them, they're, they're just people. And the stories come down to it just being people, you know, the, the gentleman that used to race the Lotus that you tracked down after, you know, so many years and, you know, the same thing at, at Henry Ford Museum when I was working there. They have uh, the 1909 Model T, number 839, uh, the 839th Model T built. It's, you know, one of the earliest Model Ts to survive. And, you know, they know its history pretty much all the way back. Well, all the way back to the original owner. And, you know, we decided that for the 100th anniversary of the Model T back in 2009, well, 2008 and nine, because it kind of carried over. They wanted a two-year celebration, you know, really party it up for the Model T. Um, but we decided that that car should be running and go out to certain events. And in doing that, of course, as John said, you know, one of the things that we love to do as historians is is the research and find the stories and and track down all the information we can. And in doing that, of course, I pulled all of the, the, what we would call curatorial files on the car. So all the information the museum has on the car and started digging through it. Okay. What is this thing's history? Where has it been? What, what changes have been made, if any, what, you know, over and over. And in that file, it, it goes all the way back to the original owner. And of course, in, in that day and age, as, as John says, you know, that is, you know, we're already into the age of technology, computers, internet, everything we got, we've got it right at our fingertips. And I simply started doing some research on that family name and that town. And turns out the family still lives there. Turns out the grandson was still living in that town and I found his contact information. So like John did, I called him up, called him up out of the blue. He had no clue who I was, told him who I was, where I worked and that model T number 839 was at the museum. It was the car that his grandfather owned. Um, he knew the car was at the museum. He, he had already kind of known that, but he didn't know we were going to get it running. He didn't know kind of what, you know, the story was of how it got there, all of that. So, you know, we talked, I got stories out of him. Uh, it turns out that was the first car in that town. It was his grandfather, 
um, was, you know, fairly well to do in the town and was able to buy one of the, you know, the first automobile to ever be shipped to that town. And that was this Model T. Uh, and although, you know, he did not, the car was long gone by the time he was born and grow, grew up enough to remember and have memories. Uh, but he remembers the family always talking about the Model T and told him that, you know, we're going to be running it at these shows. And, and, you know, he was like, well, you know, that's, that's awesome. And I'm going to come to one of those. And he decided to come to old car festival and actually see the Henry Ford museum, see Greenfield village, see the car and, you know, proper Southern gentleman. Um, and, and his wife was obviously a, a very proper Southern lady, but I very much remember I was standing talking to another colleague and someone tapped me on the back and I turned around and there was this gentleman standing there and he simply said, I understand you're the man who worked on my grandpappy's automobile. And that just, it hit me, it hit me hard because the, just the, the, you know, memories that you could see coming out of him and of his grandfather, even though he never knew the car, um, you know, he still had a passion for it and a love for it. And, you know, he wanted to acknowledge that I was the one that got his grandfather's Model T going again and brought life back to it. And, you know, it was just one of those moments where more stories came out and we, you know, we got him to sit in the car and talk about what he remembered of his grandfather. And, you know, it's stories don't have to be about famous people. They don't have to be about famous moments in time. They don't have to be about Jim Clark crossing the finish line in that type 38 in 1965. They can be about somebody's grandfather owning the first Model T in a town and the memories that that brings back of someone's grandfather. It, it's, it's all of the stories that tie together throughout history that make these cars more than just another car on the road. And, and that's what I love about it. And that's what I try to do even with my personal cars. You know, I talk about work and I do that at work and it's, it's part of my job. But when I come home, and, you know, if I don't have a whole bunch of work to do with mowing the lawn and trimming the, the yard and working on the house and all those great things that we all have to do, when I have the opportunity to sit down and not only work on my personal cars, but research my personal cars. And I've, I've talked a lot about <clears throat> a lot about my peerless on the show. And it wasn't that long ago, I, a few months ago, and I, I, I don't think I talked about it on the show yet, but I, the, the family that I bought it from, they sent me um, through some mutual contacts, uh, the receipts from when their father bought the car back in 1962, I think it was, I, I don't have the receipts in front of me. And the wife of the gentleman that sold the car filled these receipts out that, you know, payment was made and she actually signed the signature line with her name. 
And of course, in, in that time, it was, you know, Mrs. And then the gentleman's name. I don't want to say anyone's name for, you know, because these are personal people. And, um, but from having that name again, in this day and age, I simply went online, looked up that name and the town I knew they were from and started finding some information on the family and thought, you know what, why not just try it on Facebook? And I typed in that name on Facebook and sure enough, that name came up, but it was a junior. So I thought, well, this may be the son. So I kind of looked at the Facebook page as much as possible and found that he was born in the town in Michigan. So things lined up. So as John says, you know, you either pick up the phone and make that cold call. Well, in this day, you know, with Facebook, I, I made a, a cold Facebook messenger um, message and sent it to him and said, you know, hey, I, I own a car that was owned by a person with your same name from the town you were born in and raised in. And I was just wondering if you had any contact uh, or if you were connected to that family and this person, uh, you know, that may have owned antique automobiles. And it took a couple of days, possibly he's somebody like me that I don't get on Facebook that often. Um, and I simply got a message back that said, do you own my dad's Peerless? And that was it. That's what came through. And I said, yeah, I simply, yeah, I wrote back. Yeah, I, I bought the Peerless from this family. And he said, that's the family my dad, mom and dad sold it to. And I, you know, then learned a whole bunch of history from him about the car that his dad had told him. And he still owns the Model T that his dad owned that used to be in the same barn as this Peerless. And, you know, so there's, there's this connection now, not only between us, but also the hope that someday his Model T and the Peerless will actually get to drive around together again. And Well, it, the Peerless never drove around when it was there, but at least they could park next to each other again um, and, you know, kind of reunite that story. And, you know, as John says, you know, it's sometimes for us, it's the research that is the best, you know, the restoration and getting the car back on the road is, is really fun. But, you know, when you take the car to a car show where you're driving around and somebody asks you, Oh man, what is that? And you can say that, yeah, it's a 1923 peerless, but if, you know, they really want to know more about it, you have the whole backstory. You can tell the story of the people who owned the car, the stories that, you know, go with the car and I mean, my Peerless has some really goofy stories that go with it um, because basically through the last two owners, the car has been able to actually run, like fire the engine fire up and run, but it doesn't move because supposedly there's a broken axle shaft in the rear end that no one has fixed since probably sometime in the 1930s or 40s. And... Uh, you know, so now I kind of know those stories. And when I go to pull the rear axle apart to rebuild it and make sure things are okay, good odds I'm going to find a broken axle shaft that I have to deal with. Uh, so, you know, we started out with some big names, you know, and the, you know, the, the names at Lotus, you know, Sir Jackie Stewart, um, John Surtees, 
but it's it's always just about the people and the you know stories of the cars and it can be an everyday american person like myself or john or it could be stories that revolve around somebody like jackie stewart and jim clark um it's to us it's about the stories and and that's what makes history great is is the stories so uh, yeah that's a long-winded version of probably something I could have said a lot more succinct. What do you think? In this episode, well, I was to say this episode seems to be, you know, it's it's interesting. And like you said, we started out with some big names and we finished up talking about just everyday people that we've encountered and been able to have an effect on their life. And sometimes, you know, that's that's the reward. Um, we've also talked about how stalkerish we are, and um, we talk. Um, how do I want to say this? Is and when Zara was on the episode, the show a few weeks ago, and she recently bought a, she bought a Subaru BRZ, and it's kind of the same thing. Is I know the previous owner's name that had the car, and the one thing we don't like about the car is he put an aftermarket exhaust on it. And I said, well, I'll just run by his house and knock on their door and maybe they kept the stock exhaust. You know, they haven't, you know, it's only been a month since they sold the car. And she thinks I'm the craziest person on the planet for pulling up and knocking on somebody's door. Hey, do you have these car parts? But it doesn't seem that odd to me. I don't think it seems odd to you. Um, you and I have a mutual friend who still works at the Henry Ford, Derek, that when I worked with him 20 years ago in the middle of Kansas, he, he would always, when he went on trips and that, he would spend part of his trip driving the back alleys of whatever town he went to looking for cars or parts or interesting things and would just knock on people's doors. And no, no offense to him. He was a smaller guy than me. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, so some of this stuff, really i you know it 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 does take a mindset but that's what i enjoy like like i said I, flat if i had a job just as a researcher researching and never turned a wrench again i could be happy because the stories and it's learning and it it drives my boss crazy at work and it drive my drove my boss crazy at my previous job and guess what at the previous job and because I'll sit there and I'll read chapters on something that's remotely related to whatever project I'm on in hopes I'm going to find one sentence or two sentences that relate back to my project. More often than not, I do. And a lot of times those are very crucial sentences that help put piece one and piece two together. But it's, it's this, you know, again, like, we've said, and I like this episode. I hope the listeners do. And tell me if you don't, because I'm going to suggest to Derek that we might sit down and do this again. And, you know, another 10 or 15 episodes or something next time we're together, you know, we've got a lot of history of the cars to do in that, but I think it's kind of fun to tell these stories. And, you know, we spent an hour telling you about five or six stories. Um, but I think, part of our duty as museum people is to put these stories out there and 
you know, this is the podcast world. And as long as I keep paying our podcast host lips in 20 bucks a month, these stories are going to be out there forever. And if you've got them downloaded on your iPhone and your, or your droid or your computer, they're there forever. And you can, you know, say, Hey, this is a story Derek had about, you know, the, the Lotus type 38, or this is a story, you know, John had about the uh, Mark four. I guess one thing I should say about the Mark four is when we bought the car, we bought it out of England and Clive was kind enough to store it for us for a couple of months until we bought two or three cars and we could justify a whole container to ship it back. And his mom, Hazel, obviously, you know, his mom, Colin's widow, asked if she could sit in the car and have her photograph taken. And we said, yeah, not a problem. And we got the photograph and she's on the passenger side of the automobile. And the question we asked is, why did you sit on the passenger side? She goes, I never sat in the driver's side. She never drove the car. She had only ridden in the car. Colin had driven it once and she rode in it and she didn't feel it was right. She sat in the driver's seat and Hazel, um, funded Lotus when it started. It started in her father's lockup in the back alley. And Hazel was a very competitive race car driver uh, in the early years of Lotus. There's a lot of pictures of her racing Lotus Mark sixes and stuff. So there, there, you know, there's, I'm going to conclude with that story for the evening is that, you know, even it's a little story about Hazel and people, we have the picture on display with the car at the museum and people go, why does this happen? Why is this this way? Because Number one, she wanted it that way, and it's not our position. But number two, she had a very moving reason why she did that. And frankly, I not, not that I have much say, like I said, but I can live with it. That's just a piece of history. Anything more from you, Derek? Or no, I don't think so. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. You know, the, the stories and, and sometimes there's those moments where, you know, with Hazel, you know, there's, there's the stories that come out that there's also out of, out of respect of something that, you know, Hazel chose to only sit in the passenger seat. And, you know, it's, to me, that's what it's about. And, you know, there's a lot of times that, in this job that you get almost chills and um, maybe even well up a little bit. And uh, I've had a few of those moments in my career and, uh, but that's, that's what it's about. We're, you know, saving the stories and saving history. And as you said, John, you know, now that it's even out on, you know, some of the stories go out on podcast, there's a digital record of those. And that's, that's important. With that, I'm not going to do a sales pitch on the website or anything. I'm going to leave it as just a, this was a, to me, a very moving episode. And it's why our podcast is here. It's why I do what I do for a paycheck every week. Kind of moved me a little bit tonight. So I hope you all enjoyed. And I'm going to go see if I can shake this cold. I apologize for my voice to everybody again. But good night, good morning, good day, or whenever you're listening. Oh, I can. Thanks for listening and have a great day or a great evening.